So I want to ask you a question. What does it mean to be a man? Now that's a question that had I asked it, I don't know, 20 years ago, everybody would have known the answer. Very straightforward answer. In post-World War II America, everybody knew what it meant to be a man. It meant to be like John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, Clint Eastwood, or if you're a little younger, Sylvester Stallone. All of these actors and the characters they played on the big screen kind of laid out for us that, that aspirational view of what it meant to be a man. They kind of defined the upper boundary, right? Men were strong, often silent, and always brave. They were heroes. Now, on the small screen, on TV, we were given, I think, typically more attainable models, right? Uh, if you're a little bit older, you'll remember Ward Cleaver and Leave It to Beaver. Or uh, a little, little younger than that, uh, Steve Douglas, right? And um, My Three Sons, or was he Father Knows Best? I forget. My Three Sons, that's right. Or like, you, you know, maybe we'll, we'll move to the 80s, like Cliff Huxtable, right? Oh, I'll get in there. <laughs> but on the small screen, right, men, oh, they might not have been heroes, but they were wise, patient, fathers who provided for their families with firm and yet always gentle authority. They were benevolent kings in their own castles. Now, as somebody over here noticed, the inclusion of Bill Cosby's character hints at the problem with our culture's romantic, even heroic view and presentation of men, whether on the big screen or the small screen. The problem is it so often didn't square with reality. Post Me Too, the exposure of toxic masculinity in which men are defined, yes, by their strength, but even more so by their aggression and willingness to exert power over others. All of that has left many of us wondering where our culture went wrong in training boys to be men. Many of us are thinking about this in the wake of the shooting in Buffalo. While the focus is rightly on the racist motivation of the shooter, and I'm not going to talk about that, we should not lose sight of the fact that once again, it was a young man, a young angry man, who pulled the trigger. As it has been in almost every mass shooting, stretching all the way back to Columbine 23 years ago. One cultural commentator observed after the Stoneman Douglas shooting in Florida four years ago, the boys are not all right. The boys are not all right. As we continue our four-part topical series on gender, we turn this morning to the topic of men. Quoting that same commentator, in a world where the very qualities that used to define us, strength, aggression, and competitiveness, are no longer wanted, or I might add, valued, in a world where men feel isolated, confused, and conflicted about their nature, where do we go? Where do we turn to understand what it means to be a man? Should we even talk in those terms anymore? Does the Bible have anything to say about what it means not just to be a male, but a man, even a good man, who could actually be proud of his masculinity rather than ashamed of it? And is there any hope 
for men who have not been good men? Which I take it to be all the men in this room. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, it's conveniently found on page 2 of the Bibles we've provided. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 17 today. We're not going to look at every verse. This is not an expositional sermon. This is a topical sermon that is kind of grounded in this particular passage, though we're going to go a couple of other places as well. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 17. Last week, we saw that God created men and women equal in status and dignity in the image of God. And yet he also created them different as male and female. So this week, we're going to talk about men. Next week, we're going to talk about women. So while this sermon this week is for everyone, I'm just going to say, say it up front, right? I am going to be talking about men, and I'm going to be talking directly to men quite a bit. We'll turn the tables next week. I do think, however, that there's plenty here in today's sermon for women. As women, as you think about relating to the men in your life, as you think maybe as a mom about raising boys to be men, as you think about loving the men in your life, I hope there's something here for you, but I'm going to be sort of unapologetically talking about men and to men. And here's my argument and my outline. We'll put it on the screen. Anatomy makes you male. Responsibility makes you a man. But only Christ can make you a king. Anatomy makes you male. Responsibility makes you a man. But only Christ can make you a king. We're going to take those in order. So first, anatomy makes you male. Let's look at uh, just there at Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. So what's going on in Genesis 2? In Genesis 2, basically, it's taking day 6 and really the second half of day 6 from Genesis 1 and kind of double-clicking on it. We're now going to go into a lot more detail about the creation of humanity. We saw last week that God made humanity. The Hebrew word for that is Adam. God made humanity both male and female. Now we're going to learn that he made the male version of humanity, the male version of Adam, first, before he made the female version of Adam. And confusingly, the, the man is also called Adam. Um, this time, though, there's a there's a there's the word the in front of it. So back in chapter one, he created Adam. Now he's creating the Adam, which is where we get the name Adam from. Now, the man is made first. Todd Miles is going to be looking at a verse in the New Testament tonight at, at our Sunday evening prayer meeting uh, that, that, that's going to like drill down deep into the significance of the order, the fact that man was made first and then the woman. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. What I am going to observe is, men, don't let it go to your head that you were made first. Because there's a wordplay in this verse. The Adam is made from the Adamah, the dust of the ground. Now, if any of you women have ever wondered if there's biblical justification for thinking that men are dirtbags, <laughs> this is it. This, this is it right here. Men are made from the dust of the ground. The Adam are made from the Adama. All right? Now, the good news for men is they didn't stay just dirtbags. God breathes life into them. And the man becomes a living being, an embodied soul. Here's the point. Males are males because of our created bodies, our anatomy. Maleness, if that's a word, is not performative. It's not something that just anybody can act out. No, maleness is very much tied 
to our, 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 our physical nature. Our male parts, both external and internal, both structural and hormonal, are different from female parts. Okay, I take that to be fairly obvious. But here's the thing, we're not just sexual creatures. We are actually, and I'm gonna use a big word here, sexually dimorphous creatures. What does that mean? It simply means that there are things about men that are different from women that are not directly involved or even needed for sexual reproduction. What are some of those things? Size, strength, aggression, height, speed, lung capacity, heart capacity, the list goes on and on actually. Now, why are there some of these differences? Well, some of it has to do with our hormones and the way hormones act on our bodies. Some of it has to do with our genes. But, but here's the thing, we cannot escape the fact that part of being a human male is these very things, the, the strength, the size, even, even the competitiveness that comes from having a lot of testosterone running through us and a Y chromosome instead of an extra X chromosome. So it is not true that a trans man is a man, full stop. This, this is something the world is very fond of saying right now. A trans man is a man. No, that's not true. Uh, gender ide ideology is, is making a claim there. It is a, it is a false claim. It is both a scientifically false claim and it is a biblically false claim. A trans man is not a man, full stop. A trans man is a female who feels like a man, who feels uncomfortable in her own body, and so is performing what they think of as maleness. It shouldn't surprise any of us that trans, whether men or women, tend to act out highly male or highly female versions of what they're thinking because they are performing. They're acting something out based on what they think a man or a woman is like, even though they are not that man or that woman. A trans life is a performative response to an inner distress. We talked about this a little bit last week. Can you imagine how distressing it would feel to be uncomfortable in your own body, to, to feel like you were born with the wrong parts? That's going to be an extremely distressing experience. And what should that experience, that human experience, call forth from us? It should not call forth from us, especially it should not call forth from us as Christians, a response of revulsion. What it should call forth from us is a response of compassion. Because a trans person is someone who is suffering. Suffering a, a profound dislocation between their bodies and their minds. Trans men should be treated with the same respect that every human man deserves, including, I would argue, using whatever name they introduce themselves with. That, that's just kind of a basic act of respect, I think, towards people. When somebody introduces themselves to you, and they, they tell you their name, use it. Use their name. Use the name that they introduce themselves by. It, you, you may be sitting there thinking, that's a girl name, and you're clearly a boy, or that's a boy name, and you're clearly a girl. Who gave you a right to decide what their name is? I experience this all the time, and I can tell 
whether or not the person is actually paying attention to me <laughs> uh, because I, I introduce myself as Michael. And there's always people in my life who then immediately start calling me Mike. And I think to myself, that's not the name I told you to call me. Sometimes they notice that I don't respond right away, you, you know. And they go, oh, is it okay if I call you Mike? And I always say, well, my mom calls me Mike and my dad. But you can call me Michael, <laughs> right? Because that's the name I gave you. So use it, right? Just use it. I, I think this is just basic human respect. Pay attention to the person in front of you. They gave you a name that doesn't make sense to you. Nobody asked you if it made sense to you. It's their name. They get to use it. So just use their name. Now, this is just my opinion, and not everybody in this room is going to agree with it. My guess is not even all the elders agree with it. But I would, I would say also, look, do not die on the hill of pronouns. Just don't die on that hill. Not worth it. Uh, I understand pronouns are sticky, right? Because pronouns seem to ask you to agree with something that you know isn't true. Uh, two things. One, remember... We are not trying to lead, as Christians, I'm not trying to lead a trans person to be a cis person. Cis person simply is the terminology for, being, for agreeing with the fact that you are the gender that you are, right? So I'm not just male out there in academic world. I'm cis male, meaning I am a male and I think I'm a male. We used to just call that male. But, but, now, but now we call it cis male, okay? My goal is not to lead trans men to be cis men. That's not my goal. My goal is to introduce them to Jesus and to trust that Jesus will then begin to take care of the brokenness in their life, a part of which, a piece of which has to do with their gender. So I don't really want to do anything that gets in the way of them understanding that I love them, that I respect them. And by the way, I want to introduce you to my friend Jesus. And if kind of obnoxiously refusing to use the pronoun that they would prefer me to use gets in the way of introducing them to Jesus, yeah, I, for me, it's not worth it. So that's one. Remember, your goal is not to convince them that they're wrong. Your goal is to lead them to Jesus. So do things that help with that. Second, they are performing. They are performing. They know they are performing. It, 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 the, the whole idea behind gender ideology is gender for all of us is just a performance. So I would just say using their pronoun is a bit like acknowledging that they're performing. You're acknowledging their performance. You're not changing reality by using the preferred pronoun. You're not even necessarily agreeing. You're just acknowledging, oh, you're performing. I'm acknowledging that you're performing. All right, you can take that up with me more later if you want or not. Uh, I'm just not convinced that pronouns are the hill that we should die on. What I am clear on, though, and what I want you to be clear on, is that all the compassion and the respect that we can show all the love that we can show does not require us denying physical, biological reality. It doesn't require us to buy in to the fact that, or to the idea that, that gender is just a performance. Nor should it require the denial or the endangering of the civil rights of others. Female bodies deserve safe spaces. Female bodies deserve equal opportunity. That said, having excluded biological females from the category of men, I don't want us to fall off the horse on the other side. I don't want us to overly narrow the expression of what it means to be male beyond what the Bible does. There is a lot of cultural variation in how we express maleness and what's appropriate for men. Um, when I was in Kenya, as a college student, I was really weirded out the first time a man reached out and took my hand and held my hand as we walked along the road. Because in America, in our culture, men holding hands is a very sexual thing. 
But in Kenya, it's what friends do. And it was a huge sign of, of respect and friendship that uh, a Kenyan man that I had, I had been living with for a few years, his fam- a few months with his family, actually reached out and took my hand and held it as we walked along the road. I don't recommend that here. It will be confusing because there are aspects of gender that are culturally determined. In Kenya, definitely, if you're a man and you want to express friendship, hold his hand. In, in Scotland, the most manly of men wear skirts, at least sometimes. Again, I, I don't recommend it here. It's, it's not how we culturally express like manhood. But in Scotland, by all means, knock yourself out, buy that kilt and wear it all you want. Over there. <laughs> all right, so we, we, just need to, we just need to acknowledge, we need to recognize there's a lot of cultural variation in the expression of what it, what it means to be a man. So do you wanna know what it looks like to be male here in America? Look around this room. Seriously, just look around. Look at all the different men in this room. Todd and I were talking about this last week. There are as many different expressions of maleness as there are in this room, and then some. Tall and short, muscular and skinny, lean and stout. There is an incredible diversity to being male. Some are really into fashion, and some you just wonder if you own a brush or a comb, and could we get you to comb your hair? You you know, I mean, and there's the whole variation in between, right? So lot, lot of variation, and that goes way beyond even our physical characteristics. Andrew Sullivan, uh, the, the conservative but gay cultural commentator I quoted last week, tells the story of sitting at home reading a book as a little boy, while his younger brother was on the floor banging a truck into the wall over and over and over again. And his grandmother, who was sitting there in the room, observes to his mom, who's also sitting there in the room, at least you finally have a real boy. Yeah, can you imagine how that hit Andrew, right? But then can you imagine what it meant to him when his father piped up and said, Andrew has everything he needs to make him a real boy. If you are born with male parts, if you've got Y chromosomes in every cell, you are a real boy. And I say that especially to the boys and men in this room who don't feel like they fit the typical cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a real boy, a real man. You are every bit as much a male, a boy, a man, as the, the, the jock or, or the, the soldier or the whatever stereotype it is that you feel like you need to attain to is also a real boy. So I think we have to ask the question, beyond sexual reproduction, why did God make human males bigger in general, stronger in general, faster in general? Well, we're going to see part of the answer anyway in the next point, when I get to it in a moment. But, but I just want to start with the fact of the male nature, that God created it, and he declared it good. And I think we need to reject our culture's tendency to pathologize its very existence. Our our culture tends to want to just turn maleness into a problem. And we want to resist that. A friend once asked my wife what was wrong with her son. She was homeschooling. uh, Her son was the the third of of three, the youngest. Uh, He had two older sisters who quietly colored when they were done with their homeschool lesson and waited patiently for mom to tell them what was next. 
while her son was quite literally bouncing off the walls and would color for, oh, I don't know, 60 seconds before he was ready to move on to something else. And so she, you know, we had, we were older, we had more kids by then. And so she asked my wife, what's wrong with her son? And Adrian's reply was, there's nothing wrong with him. He's a boy. He's just a boy. That's all. Nothing wrong. That's just the way boys are. So let me encourage you, parents of young boys, many of your discipline problems will be, if not solved, large, at least largely dealt with, if you will just run them hard every day. Just run them, right? Get that energy out, because it's going to come out one way or another. As the father of four boys, I'm just saying. God gave them a lot of energy, and it needs to be dissipated every day because it's an endless well. Your goal as parents isn't to make them docile and domestic like your girls. No, your, your goal is to help them learn how to use their God-given strength and energy and competitiveness for good. We would often ask our boys, usually after they had hit someone, or tackled them inappropriately. Why did God make you strong? Was it so you could always win? Or was it so that you could use your strength to protect others who aren't so strong? In that instance, usually meaning your little sister, right? We, we want to train our boys to use their strength, to use their energy, to use their competitiveness for good, not for selfish reasons. I think for all of us men, the question is, what do we do with the various expressions of our maleness? What do we do with the expressions of our masculinity, all the, the variations represented in this room? And that leads us to my second point. Anatomy may make you male, but responsibility makes you a man. Responsibility makes you a man. Look at Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. We'll stop there. It's been said that manhood, as opposed to maleness, manhood is something that only other men can give you. It's, it's something that's conferred through the acknowledgement of other men. I don't think that's entirely true in part because, as I've said, we can't separate sex from gender. But if there is a kernel of truth in there, it's because I think of these verses. In chapter 2, verse 15, the man is given a responsibility, a responsibility he needs to live up to, a responsibility he is going to be judged by whether or not he lives up to it. You, you see there in, in verses eight and nine, that God has planted a garden. It's the Garden of Eden. And in the middle of this perfect world, something even better has shown up, right? Perfect world, nothing wrong with it, no sin, nothing wrong. But God then takes a corner of it and just orders it beautifully, perfectly, and puts the man there. Now, don't, don't think vegetable garden. Don't think flower garden. Think like magnificent English estate. Or, I don't know, maybe if your tastes run to the French estate, think of a French estate. I personally, I prefer the, the, the more natural look of an English estate. But, but think of a parkland, a beautiful orchard. In this perfect but unordered world that God has made, God has cultivated a paradise for the man to live in. And then he's told to work this paradise and watch over this paradise. So what's this idea of working the paradise? The, the idea here, uh, the, the word that's used, is, is, is to tend it. We might even say serve it. 
Make it flourish. Make this paradise be all that it can be. Make it even grow and expand. In in, in context, it, it might specifically even mean till the ground so that it's fruitful. Because we were told back up in verse 5 of chapter 2 that at this point in time, no, no, no crops had begun to grow, in part because it hadn't rained yet, but in part because there was no one to work the ground. Same word. So part of, part of the man's job is to walk into this perfect paradise and, and, and make it even better. Make, make it grow and expand. Make it flourish in every way possible. And then also watch over it. So the language of watching over is more straightforward. It's the language of protecting or guarding. The man was to protect the garden from anything or, or anyone that might harm it. So, so here's the responsibility that the first man is given, and I think becomes then a paradigm for all men. Make this garden that God planted, make it fruitful. Make it flourish and then protect it from anything that might spoil it. Now, obviously, this responsibility that he's given has implications for his daily work. You you realize the Garden of Eden was the first job site. Adam had to show up every day and go to work. But it's more than just a job site, right? Eden is also home. It's where he lives. And that becomes abundantly apparent once the woman shows up here in a few verses. So it's, it's work, it's job site, it's also home, but it's more than that. It's the place where God walks with the man and talks to him. We learn that in the opening verses of chapter 3. So Eden is job site, it's workplace. Eden is home. Eden is also church, the place where God and man meet. So what do we have here? We have all three aspects of human life, family, home, society, workplace, church. All of them are represented in the Garden of Eden, and the man is responsible for protecting all of it and making all of it flourish. This is not a role that he's going to play. This is not a a performance that he's going to do. This is a vocation. This is a calling on all of his life. Make the garden, home, work, church, make it fruitful, make it grow, expand it so that it fills the whole earth and guard it. Protect it from anything that would spoil it. I don't have to tell you that we don't live in that world anymore, right? We don't live in a a unified world where Home and work and church are all one and the same thing. It's, it, sin has come in, and now family and society and church are all splintered and fractured and broken apart. But men, as men, the paradigm and the pattern holds. Why are men strong? Well, because we're called to protect that which has been entrusted to us. I'm... I'm reminded of the monument that stands in Washington, D.C. that I'm not sure would be built anymore. Daniel has referred to this. It's the monument that the women of America erected in the memory of all of the men on the Titanic who made sure that the women and the children got on the lifeboats first and so went to their death. There was a day when men understood that our calling as men was to protect that which is not as strong as us, including women and children in general. Some people last week questioned why I suggested that women serving on the front lines of battle in our armed forces was an example of our culture going too far. And I was struck by the age of the people that asked me that question. Because I guarantee you, anybody my age or older knows this was just obvious why that's too far. We, we don't put women on the front lines. No, women are to be protected, cherished. And that's something that our culture used to just understand and take for granted. 
Not so much anymore. Why are men so often driven and competitive? Why are we by nature problem solvers and goal setters? I think it's because we're called to make whatever part of the garden that's been entrusted to us, we're called to make it grow. We're called to make it flourish. I think it's hardwired into us from the very beginning, according to Genesis. Now, I want to be really clear here. Responsibility in this way, being responsible to make whatever part of the garden you're in grow and flourish and protect it, responsibility does not mean that you're always in charge. It does not mean that you never need help. It does not mean that you are always right. I listened to an interview uh, this week with the woman who kind of came up with the term mansplaining. She's actually a social science researcher. And she tells the story of um, being invited to a party where there are a bunch of rich, powerful people. And the richest and most powerful person there was the host, a man. And at the end of the party, he goes up and talks to her, and he asks her what she does, and she says she's an author. She writes, oh, what are you writing about? She explains what she's currently, you know, has, has currently written on her, her latest book. And he immediately says, oh, you especially need to read this one book. There's this one book, and it is, it is without doubt the best book on that topic. If you really want to understand that topic, you need to read this book. The whole time she's sitting there deeply aware that he's never read that book because she wrote it. <laughs> he was telling her about her own book. All right, men, out of that experience, she wrote an article that comes up with the word mansplaining. No, no, being responsible does not mean we're always right. We always know. No, it means that we understand our duty is to always leave the place better than when we found it and to give ourselves to that, whatever the place happens to be. Men, is this how you think about your own masculinity? You may have been entrusted with a lot. You may have a lot of responsibility at, at, at work, at, at home. Your, your corner of the garden might be actually quite large. Or at, at the moment, I'm thinking maybe particularly the boys in the room, the teenagers in the room, you may be responsible for nothing more than just yourself, like getting yourself out of bed every day, making your bed, getting to school on time. You may just be responsible for yourself. But much or little, men, are you giving your strength, your ingenuity, your creativity, your stamina to protecting your corner of the garden and making it flourish? Or are you guilty of only paying attention to certain parts of the garden? Like maybe you're really concerned about what's happening at work, but you're kind of neglecting this other part of the garden at home that you've been entrusted with. Or are you approaching the garden selfishly, just trying to get out of it what you can for yourself, whether that's work or home or church? Or are you approaching it passively, Letting others do the work for you. There's a version of masculinity that's been championed over the years in the church by people like John Eldridge, Wild at Heart, or Mark Driscoll. You also see it out there, other versions of it, similar, somewhat different, out there in the culture. You hear it in some of the language of Donald Trump or Jordan Peterson, the, the Canadian uh, professor, or, or Joe Rogan, or others. And I just want to be really clear, not all of that is bad. Some of what each of those people are saying about men and masculinity is, is right. But too often, too much of it is a vision of men as hyper-masculine, tough, and even violent. And here's the thing, we're drawn to it. Men and women are drawn to that because there is a kernel of truth in it. Men are called to be strong. And, and, and so I think too often, sadly, women will find themselves more attracted to a toxic male than a passive male. The problem is when 
our masculinity, when our, our, our strength and our responsibility is, is reduced to the merely physical or framed entirely in the worldly terms of dominance. What we see in Genesis 2 is a masculinity that is in service of human flourishing, not in service of male pride. Are there places, men, where we've gotten that confused? There's one other aspect of masculinity, what it means to be a man that we should note here. From the beginning, Adam, the man, was to orient his life around God's word. Look at verse 16. That's where I stopped reading. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. All right, so picture the scene for me. The, the man has been given everything he needs to flourish. All these trees, all this food is watered by this incredible river. It's just like incredibly beautiful. So he's got everything he needs to flourish. He's been entrusted with this awesome responsibility. He is quite literally king over the world. But his authority is not absolute. He rules under God's Lordship. He is therefore to orient his life around God's word for no other reason than it is God's word. And it's God's word, not his own desires, that are to govern his life. Out of all the trees in the garden, the fruit of one of them, and only one, he is not allowed to eat under penalty of death. The text doesn't explain why. Wish it did. It, it almost seems arbitrary. The only hint we're given is the name of the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right and wrong, good and evil are not for the man to define for himself. Other that is reserved for God alone. And the man, as the first man, is to orient himself around God's word. And that's exactly where the man fails. Look over at Genesis 3. Just maybe it's on the same page, or maybe you've got to flip a page. But look over at Genesis 3. We're familiar with this story. Satan shows up in the form of a certain serpent, and through the serpent, he tempts the woman to eat from the one tree that they are forbidden to eat. And after a little back and forth, that's what she does. She eats. The woman was deceived, but not the man. Paul was thinking about that in the passage that we read earlier. He's thinking of this. Look at verse 6 of chapter 3. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for attaining wisdom, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. It turns out that through the entire conversation between the woman and the serpent, the man was there. He was there the whole time. Did, did he step up to protect the garden, throwing the serpent out? No. Did he speak up, contradicting the serpent's lies, correcting his wife's misunderstandings and misstatements, and instead calling her to the flourishing that comes from obedience? No. No, he passively abdicated both of his responsibilities to the woman, leaving her to handle it, and then just as passively went along with her deception, but he was not deceived. He chose to join her in redefining right and wrong to their utter ruin and ours. And isn't this where all of us have failed, men and women? We've decided to define what is right and wrong for ourselves, and that reaches all the way down to what we think it means to be a man or a woman. The trans movement wants to define reality, wants to define the body itself for itself. The gay, lesbian, and bisexual movement of men and women who 
who so often are experiencing same-sex attraction that they did not choose to have. They are simply experiencing it. Nevertheless, having experienced it, they want to define sexual morality for themselves rather than orient themselves around God's word despite their feelings. And men, all men, don't we want to define our masculinity in ways that serve ourselves? that serve our own desires rather than accepting the responsibility and the calling that God's word places on us. So what hope is there for us men who have not been good men? That leads third and finally to the good news of the gospel. Only Christ can make you a king. After Adam's fall, if we read on in Genesis 3, what we would find is that, that his work became toilsome as the ground itself was cursed. He was cast out of the garden along with his wife. But God was not done with humanity. In time, God would call one man, Abraham, and, and promise him that the day would come when his descendants would inherit like a new Garden of Eden, the promised land. And a little bit further in time, God would fulfill that promise in part through Israel. Israel as a nation whom God would call my son, just like he called Adam son. And once again, with, with Israel in the promised land, God is dwelling among his people in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the, the details of how the tabernacle and the temple are, are, are styled and decorated, but it's styled and decorated to look like an orchard, a garden, a symbolic garden of Eden. And guarding and tending that that tabernacle garden were like little second Adams, priests and the Levites. In fact, in Numbers chapter 18, the very same two words to tend and to guard are used to describe the duties of the Levites and the priests. Only now tending the symbolic garden means keeping up the daily sacrifice for sin. And guarding the garden means keeping the people out because of their sin. Now, all of this kind of keeps going. For centuries, these Adam-like figures, these priests and Levites keep up their work. And in time, a, a king will sit on the throne as son of God, representing God's rule over God's people in God's place. But it won't last and once again, because of the rebellion, now not just two people, but the whole nation will be cast out of the garden once more. And when they finally come back, the temple is rebuilt, but the throne remains empty, and the temple does too. Until the day that Jesus appears. Jesus, the second Adam, the son of God incarnate. And in his life, we see what it means to be a man, a good man, a man after God's own heart. There was never a man more powerful, able to command omnipotence itself, but not once did he use his power to serve himself. Oh, he was tempted. I'm uh, hanging on the cross. They said, oh, if you're son of God, come down. No, not once did he use his power to serve himself. Instead, he healed the sick. He, he showed compassion to the poor. He was single his whole life. But never was there a man who made women feel more loved or respected or fully women. There was never a man more capable, capable right? Omniscience is his birthright. There's nothing he doesn't know how to do. And yet all of his intellectual power and every word that comes out of his mouth never used to serve his own pride, but always and only the will of God and the good of those around him. 
Friends, here is a true man in all that men were intended to be. And the word to describe it is meekness with an M, meekness. Meekness doesn't mean weakness. Meekness actually means strength under control. Power completely under control and used only for the good of others. Here was true strength, always guided by love. Here was true manliness, measured not as the world measures it, but as God created it. Most of all, here is true love. As he laid down his life for sinful men and women like us. Here's here's how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, Adam, is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass, the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification." Since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul is saying that all of us stand condemned under death through Adam. But when we are united to Christ through repentance and faith, we stand condemned justified, declared not guilty, forgiven. And friends, this is what we call you to if you're not a Christian. We're not asking you to be something you're not. We're not asking you to try to clean up your life. We are asking you to trust in the death of Christ for you. But more than that, through the gift of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ, what does Paul say? He says, we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is what I mean when I say only Christ can make you a king. In Christ, we are restored to what Adam lost for us. We are remade in Christ's image. We are given Christ's righteousness. And through Christ, men, let me speak to you particularly, are enabled once again to rule and to reign as we were intended. What does your reign and rule as a man look like in Christ? Well, it has a present aspect and it has a future aspect. Presently, that reign is nothing that comes to mind when you think of politics. Presently, that reign is nothing that comes to mind when you think about your favorite action hero movie. No, the reign that Christ gives you is a spiritual reign. Men, through Christ, we are able to reign and exercise dominion over sin. No longer, says Paul, are we under the dominion of sin. No longer are we slaves to our own passions and desires. Instead, because of Christ and the Spirit of Christ in us, men, you are able to say no to your passions. You are able to say no to sin. You are able to say yes to righteousness and obedience. It's the spirit that empowers us now as men to to, to love others sacrificially, to, to spend ourselves for the sake of others who cannot and will not pay us back. 
No longer do we have to give our lives to our own selfish ends, our, our, our pride, our, our power, our, our aggrandizement. No, rather, men, through the Spirit in Christ, you are able to give yourself to be a blessing to everyone around you. You are genuinely able to leave the place better than when you found it. What does that look like at home? Well, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the flesh. We'll think about it more in a couple of weeks, but in your marriage, it looks like loving your wife sacrificially for her good. It looks like being a father who encourages his children rather than exasperating them. What does it look like at work? Well, it looks like working to please God rather than your boss. It looks like expending yourself for the good of your coworkers rather than using your coworkers to make you look good. It looks like standing up for those being mistreated at work. It looks like a willingness to sacrifice your career rather than your ethics. What does it look like at church? Well, I think for all men, it looks like giving ourselves for the flourishing of God's people, taking whatever gifts God is giving us and gladly putting them to work. It looks like a willingness to serve. It looks like a generosity in giving. It means spending time with other men, trying to encourage them, even as they encourage you. For some of us, it means serving as deacons or elders. For elders in particular, it looks like giving ourselves sacrificially for the good of the flock that God has entrusted to us, guarding the flock against deception and sin, teaching and discipling the flock so that the whole church flourishes. That's what it looks like in the present. But someday in the future, when Christ returns, the reign as a king, as a son of the king, will not just be spiritual. Scripture tells us that in the new heavens and new earth, the city of God will need neither sun nor moon because the glory of God will illuminate it and the lamb will be its lamp, Revelation chapter 22. And on that day, humanity will be fully restored to what God meant us to be. And that includes men as men. We're told on that day that the nations will walk by the light of God's glory and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into that city. Who are those kings? I'm looking at them if you are in Christ. Those kings are the redeemed children of God. What does it mean to be a man? Our model is neither John Wayne nor John Wick, Ward Cleaver, or Cliff Huxtable. Our model is Jesus, because before he's our model, he's our savior. And in him, he has given us everything we need to be men. Through him, we become the men we were always meant to be. In him, we reign over sin now. And with him, on the last day, we will reign over all creation. What does it mean to be a man? Don't look inside yourself. Don't look at culture. Look at Jesus. Let's pray. Take a moment and think about the ways in which you've been thinking about being a man, or raising a man, or loving a man wrong. Maybe think about some of the ways you've been shaped wrongly by the culture. Just confess that to the Lord. Lord, we do confess 
that we want to redefine what it means to be a man in ways that serve ourselves. We confess as women here that we want to redefine the men in our lives in ways that serve ourselves. And yet you have shown us what it means to be fully human and truly a man. But we pray that we would not despair, but that having found forgiveness through you, we would find also all that we need, all the resources, all the wisdom, all the strength that we need to follow you faithfully as men and as women in this world. Until the day you complete your work in us and we are all that you intended us to be because you are all in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.